Welcome to Sabbath School brought to you by It Is Written. We're continuing our study this week on the subject of death, dying, and the future hope. And this week, we are looking at lesson number 10, the fires of hell. Now, lest you be terribly concerned and turn off and stop watching right now, I will encourage you that there is good news in this subject. In fact, there is phenomenal news in this subject. And we're going to dig into it and understand it better today with the help of the author of the Sabbath School lesson, Dr. Alberto Tim. He is an associate director of the LNG White Estate. Alberto, welcome back. I am honored to be with you. So we're on lesson number 10 now. We've got four more to go. And here in lesson number 10, we're hitting the fires of hell. We've covered a lot of ground already. We've got a pretty good understanding of what happens at death and why it happens and its origins and so forth. But now we're looking at, well, eternal death for some. And, uh, and it's a subject that, well, maybe isn't the, the top of the list for people to, to delve into for an uplifting study, but maybe it ought to be. But before we dig into it, I want to I kind of reference a, a sermon, probably one of the most famous sermons on this subject. It, I will suggest that it's perhaps a little misguided, perhaps a lot misguided, and yet one of the most famous ones on this subject. It was preached in the year 1741 by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Doesn't sound very pleasant, but what was the what Tell us a little bit more about this sermon. What was in it? What was behind it? Help us understand this. Oh, this famous uh, sermon was preached by Jonathan Edwards, and he was a Congregationalist theologian and revivalist. And he preached it for the first time because he repeated it uh, uh, other times. But the first time that he preached was in July 8, 1741, in a town in, in Connecticut. And he was speaking in this one, really, that uh, all of us are condemned to hell. It, it would not be for the sake of God's mercy, would be uh, fall into hell and will be consumed by the fires. And he dramatized it very much, saying that there was just a little tiny cord or whatever you would call that holds you from the fires of hell. If it breaks, really, you are dead for all eternity. And so he dramatized it so much that uh, people raced from the pew and embraced the columns, some of them the columns of the church that hold the roof of the, the, of the, the church there, uh, begging and shouting and uh, so loudly and asking for God's mercy to hold them, uh, avoiding them to, to go to hell. It was so loud that he could not even finish his sermon. And that became famous because of the negative. If today people speak a lot about God's love, that one was the opposite one, really speaking of a, a justice that would punish the, the wicked in the flames of hell forever, forever and ever, for all eternity. Can you imagine? So I'm going to ask the next question. I, maybe part of the answer is obvious, but what kind of an impact did that sermon have? I think part of the answer is we're, we're talking about it now in 2022, so clearly it had an impact. But what are some other elements of the impact that that sermon had and, and continues to have in the world today? 
Actually, we have to consider something that is not the first time that such a message was really portrayed. And I have a few books with me here, maybe you saw it before, from Plato. You have one is called uh, Fedu, and the other one is uh, Fedrus. And some people confuse the two, they believe that is, they are exactly the same book. No, it just changes a little bit the title here. But uh, both of them deal with this. But the idea of hell is an ancient pagan idea that was really very much shaped into Greek philosophy. And so Plato, recording the words of, uh, of Socrates, he portrays hell in this way, where after that you go over there and you are uh, punished. And so this is not the only one, there are other ones. Some people say, at least one author, and I think that he is right, that the idea of a always burning hell comes, is a mixture, is a, of Greek mythology with Northern European paganism. And that really helped. And this came into Christianity basically during the Hellenistic period in the influence during the Roman, Roman Empire. And it was quite used really to scare people. So I would never leave the ancient or medieval church because if I would leave the church, I would go to hell almost immediately after that. So in other words, that was a way to keep members or believers faithful to the church by means of fear. And so this idea continues uh, till now. Of course, many uh, Christian theologians are trying to accommodate a little bit and saying, well, this idea of an eternal, uh, always burning hell will finally have an end. And so the idea of oh, eternity is no, not so much popular, but the idea of burning over there still remains. It's kind of an interesting contrast or, or dilemma that Christians face in accepting an eternally burning hell, because if that's the case, if hell does burn forever, and if, if people in hell are tortured forever, then that would mean that God is miraculously keeping sin in existence uh, throughout eternity, which is difficult to reconcile with a, with a God of love. And yet many Christians are trying to find ways to, uh, to do that. It's, it's fascinating. So in other words, yes, you are right, because all life, whether of the righteous or the wicked, comes from God. We cannot create life. Life comes from Him. So why He continue providing life for people to be punished forever in hell? So it seems one of the consequences of this view is that would, after the new heaven and the new earth would be in place, and God promised, I will make everything new. That is not the case. It's not everything. Some things, because there still would continue a hell burning over there. And in other words, God would keep in the universe somewhere uh, a penal camp. Well, I don't think that this is part of God's plan. 
You know, it, it also, this idea of an eternally burning or an ever-burning hell also negates probably the most famous scripture in the entire Bible, at least the most quoted scripture in the entire Bible, and that's John 3.16. It says that, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So there's a there are two choices there, either everlasting life or perishing, and, and perishing is not the same as everlasting life. So it's an interesting challenge that many Christians hopefully will, will face sooner or later to realize that this teaching doesn't have a biblical basis. Now, some Christians have, have come up with, have come against this idea that, this unpleasant idea that God keeps sinners roasting throughout eternity, and they say, well, we can't, we can't stomach that, we can't have that, because we still believe that God is love and we can't seem to reconcile it. So this idea of purgatory came into existence. Talk a little bit about purgatory. What, what supposedly is it? What's its purpose? Um, and is there any evidence for it in the Bible? Well, the, the concept of purgatory has its origin in Greek philosophy as well. It's surprisingly, much of our thought is shaped by them to such extent that uh, one historian even says that we think the way we do uh, because the Greek taught the way they did. So in other words, we are our Western uh, culture and even Christianity exported to the non-Western world also was much shaped by this kind of thinking. So the idea of purgatory comes from uh, from uh, Plato as well. Where you go there, you are being punished over there. And so, in other words, for Greek philosophy, if you were purified, purified by philosophy, or if you were a philosopher, you would go directly to the paradise, to the main place, using the, our language today, paradise. They had other ones. I don't want to complicate it. Would go there. Otherwise, you would have to purify in a certain purgatory there. And this idea was, uh, was incorporated by the Christian world under the influence of the Greek world uh, empire and also the Hellenistic period. And so that has been one of the main points. And to that they added another element. This is the element of praying for the souls in purgatory. And that has also a pagan origin. And you have one of the apocryphal books that speaks about this, but not a canonical Bible, really, as we understand, has that kind of notion. So in other words, to make the story short, uh, there is a purgatory. If you are not a saint or a martyr, then you go first the uh, intermediate state would be the purgatory and people who are alive today, some of your friends or relatives can pray for you and even pay some kind of money uh, for the church and by doing so you can lower a little bit the sufferings of the purgatory. So that even became in the days of Luther a way of making much money. And you remember that in Germany you have uh, Johann uh, Tetzel, that was the famous uh, indulgence uh, seller over there to, to lower the, the, the payment of, I mean, the punishment in the purgatory.
When a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. It has kind of a, a, a lyrical, a lyrical element to it. Sounds great. Not particularly biblical, though. And a lot of things that even much of Christianity today also believes. Well, at least to some extent or another, sounds great. But as you dig into it, it doesn't make a lot of sense, and it's certainly not biblical. The beautiful thing about God's word is, if we understand it correctly. It is understandable, it's reasonable, and it's filled with hope. And that really is one of the reasons why we're spending 14 weeks looking at the subject on death, dying, and the future hope, is so that we can have the right perspective and a hope on things in this world. I want to encourage you again, if you haven't already done so, I, I know I bring this up every week, but my hope is that you will get this book on death, dying, and the future hope. It's the companion book to the quarterly study that you're doing right now. It adds so much more and is great for sharing your faith as well. You can pick this up at itiswritten.shop. Again, that's itiswritten.shop on death, dying, and the future hope by author Alberto Tim. We're going to be back in just a moment, and we're going to continue this look at the subject of hell. We'll be right back. The idea continues to fill people with dread. People all around the world live in fear of hell. But what did Jesus say about it? What does the Bible actually say about hell? And how can we separate the fact from the fiction? Join me in the beautiful Caribbean for To Hell and Back. We'll go to hell and we'll come back. And while we're there, we'll discover what the Word of God actually says about this vitally important subject. Is it as bad as people think? Maybe it's worse. Or perhaps, perhaps God has a special message in the Bible, enabling us to see the love of God even in the fires of hell. Don't miss To Hell and Back. Brought to you by It Is Written TV. Welcome back to Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. This week we are looking at the fires of hell and looking for hope and encouragement in this subject. And I, I think we're finding it and we're going to continue to in this final segment of today's study. You know, it's important, uh, Alberto, as we look at this subject that we're looking at today, as well as the, the greater subject that we're covering this quarter uh, on death, to, to not be judgmental. You know, sometimes it's, it can be tempting when we say, here's what the Bible says, but, oh, there's so many other people out there who, who don't believe this, there's a temptation to be judgmental and, and maybe to feel some sense of superiority that we have the truth and that they don't or something like that. That may not be the healthiest perspective, though. What do you think? Yes, that is the case. We are here to evaluate ideas from a biblical perspective. So it's not to judge people or churches or denominations because... Each one has his or her own view. But I understand that we are here with a mission. And the mission is to dig into the Word of God as much as we can, not only by comparing or to endorsing what we believe or not, but to also contrast with some views that we understand from our uh, perspective, from our study of the Bible, that do not fit into the overall the consensus of Scripture. 
So we're looking at, at hell right now and, and also at purgatory. Why was this concept, this understanding of hell and of purgatory popular in the post-apostolic era, era of the church? And did, you mentioned that it came out, at least portions of it came out of um, Plato and Socrates and so forth. But does this idea have any biblical support? Where does the idea come from if it's supposedly based on the Bible? Well, actually, they try to read the Bible. As I mentioned before, at the beginning of our series, people try to read the Bible from their own perspective, their worldview, our lenses, our philosophy, our, our ideology, and so on. If you have a framework, you want to, to make everything fit into that framework, unless you change the paradigm. And in our case, we have a paradigm as well. And I hope that our paradigm is the Bible. So what happened with uh, the Christian world is after the death of the apostles and uh, in the post-apostolic era, when Christianity moved away from Palestine into the, the Roman, uh, uh, Roman, uh, Greco-Roman culture, they absorbed many elements because we usually are children of our, our, some kind of society, of our culture. And uh, to, a, to some degree, uh, uh, Christianity was able to hold its biblical identity. But more and more to be accepted by the philosophical world of that time, they tried to reread the Bible from... Uh, uh, allegorical perspective and incorporated some elements. And of course, this is a very significant point that I would like to make. It's the following. The New Testament uses uh, the Greek language, words that were part of, uh, of uh, classical Greek Although, of course, it was the popular Greek called Koine and not the, the, the classical one, but word, words. But you have to remember something. The New Testament uses words of the language available at that time, but not with a classical philosophical meaning, but the background to understand the New Testament words were the Old Testament, the Hebrew mind. Not a Greek mindset, but a Hebrew mindset. But using the language, some people would probably read into the Bible the, the Greek uh, meaning to it. And I don't want to complicate very much to this. But remember, does Paul not speak about uh, body, spirit, and soul? Something like that? Yes. I can say, well, this is the same as the Greeks spoke. Well, for the Greeks, they can be um, that kind of dichotomic approach where you separate things. So there is a surviving soul after that. But from a biblical perspective, no. Is that this, like spirit, is the whole with emphasis in this part. The whole with emphasis in my body or so on. Never disconnected. So this kind of process of trying to read the the Bible through the Hellenistic mind is that brought not only 
this kind of dichotomic approach of a spirit or soul surviving the Bible, I mean the dead of the body, but also the idea of everlasting hell. And there is something that I would just like to add. Of course, the Bible speaks of the fire that never get, uh, uh, that will always burn or so on. Remember that the word eternal in the original Bible languages, it has always a meaning that is attached to whatever. The meaning depends on the context. When the word eternal is applied to God, who never had a beginning and never will have an end, then it means something that will never cease. When it's to the fire, the eternal fire, what it means really is that a fire will continue till accomplishes the destruction, will not really go out um, before that, will continue till then and the consequences will be eternal as well. So does not mean that the fire itself will continue. But then you can ask me, Eric, where did you get this idea? Well, if you go to the epistle of, uh, of Jude, you will see something there that Sodom and Gomorrah are symbols of the everlasting fire. Are they, those cities still burning in the Middle East? No, but they were destroyed. So the, the fire is eternal in or everlasting in the sense that we will accomplish what is intended to accomplish. So if we come to the Bible with a, a presupposition, a, a worldview, a perspective that lends us to think that hellfire burns throughout eternity because we've been influenced by Hellenistic uh, beliefs over time and so forth. And then we read words in the Bible like everlasting fire or eternal fire. We automatically start to think that that fire is going to be forever, uh, that it's not going to go out. But if instead we simply let the Bible speak directly to us without that, that preconceived idea, then we get a little clearer picture of what's going on. What, what are some of the implications if the Bible did speak of an everlasting fire, a, a, a hellfire that never ends? What are some of the implications of that, if that were true? Well, there are several that we could, uh, could mention. And of course, for the sake of time, I will just mention a few of them. But one of them, the main one in my understanding... It really damages God's character. In other words, if, the, if God is love and is just, the idea of an everlasting punishment for the wicked is something absolutely unproportional. In other words, what do I mean by this? Let's suppose a child that was not a good one dies at 12 years of age, was not that bad, not a criminal or something like that, but a child that did not have any interest in religion. Why should that child be punished for the 12 years? Well, even less than 12 years till the age of reason started, but for those few years throughout the whole eternity in a huge fire in the flames of hell. Is this not something unjust from the, the part of God? Usually a sentence, even in our own justice, 
uh, courthouses or so is proportional to the guilt or to the whatever the person did is not out of the, the this kind. So I think that in this case, God would be uh, putting a, 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 a will be providing a punishment completely out of proportion. Another point is. If they are punished immediately after that, then the final judgment does not make sense. Why to release somebody from the punishment of hell to bring here to, the, to, to be resurrected, as the Bible says, because the resurrection is not only for the, the righteous, it's for the wicked also, according to, to Revelation chapter 20. Why to bring here to be judged and to send back again to to the same fires of hell to be punished. This is something absolutely unreasonable. And, uh, and so in this case, I think that we have to reverse it. We have enough Bible evidences that say that each one would be punished in this, I am referring again to Revelation 20, will be punished according to their works is not something now I will be punishing with all power throughout eternity. No. And there will be a time, according to Malachi chapter uh, 4, verse 1, where there will be left nothing from the wicked. They will be absolutely destroyed. So God has a better plan. He will punish them because they deserve it, and that was their choice but it will be proportional to their works. And this is absolutely clear from the Bible. We have no, no doubts about this. So if I, if I understand you correctly, what you said is the wicked will, will one day experience hellfire, but it's not going to be a hellfire that lasts throughout eternity. It's limited in time. And the purpose of it is to destroy sin and any sinners who choose to cling to that sin, but ultimately the sinners are going to be reduced to ashes and dust and never will they be anymore. Is that correct? Exactly. All right, so that gives us a picture of God not keeping sin in existence throughout eternity, but ultimately bringing sin, bringing suffering, bringing rebellion, uh, bringing pain to an end. And, And even the devil himself, the Bible talks about God kindling a supernatural fire in the in the midst of the devil and turning him to ashes and smoke and never would he be anymore. So even the instigator of all this ultimately is not going to suffer without end. He's going to be turned to ashes and smoke as well. The positive side of all this is from that point forward, there's going to be peace and serenity and happiness and joy throughout the entire universe and iniquity will not rise up a second time. That's encouraging to me. I hope that it's encouraging to you. Next week when we come back, we're going to continue our journey through this subject of death, dying, and the future hope. And my hope and prayer is that as we've gone through week by week, you have been blessed and your understanding has been opened just a little bit more and you've been able to see a clearer picture of a God who loves you. We'll be back again next week here on Sabbath School brought to you by It Is Written. We look forward to seeing you then. God bless you.